0: Thank you all for being here and welcome uh, to our discussion today of the False Claims Act uh, with a lot of focus on some proposed uh, legislation on the False Claims Act. My name is Dean Reuter. I'm director of the Federalist Society's practice groups uh, and I want to thank the members of the Criminal Law and Procedure Practice Group and the Administrative Law and Regulation
1: Practice Group for helping to put this event together. Uh, I also want to thank uh, the folks here at Jones Day for hosting us And single out in particular Jim
0: Gouch, partner here, who helped us get the room, uh, but most especially Ann Donovan, who's been uh, circulating through the room and making sure everything is is just so. So thank you, Ann.
1: We're anxious to get to the program, so I'm not going to give a long winded introduction of the topic. Um, But let me also thank our moderator uh, for today and introduce him, uh, Christopher uh, Christopher Cook, rather. I knew I would do that. Um, Also from the law firm here at Jones Day. Mr. Cook, thank you. Welcome everybody, and, and thank you for coming here. Uh, my goal also today will be to stay as much out of the way as our of our panelists as possible. Uh, the topic today uh, is False Claims Act, and specifically the proposed amendments that are now before Congress uh, regarding the False Claims Act. We will be focusing primarily on the amendments that have been proposed by Senator Grassley on the Senate side. Uh, I am a partner here at Jones Day. And as a matter of full disclosure, uh, my leanings or my my prejudices would be with the defense counsel on the panel here today, since I do represent corporations that are subject to false claims at KETAM lawsuits, I will do my best to keep those prejudices as much out of sight as possible, and even handedly moderate the panel. Uh, We do have a a good panel here today. Uh, First we have Shelley Slade. And I've got a short introduction on each. We'll see if I can get through it correctly, and they'll correct me if I'm I'm wrong. Uh, Ms. Slade, on the the far right side of the panel today, has been a partner at Fogel, Slade, and Goldstein since 2000, so firm here in Washington, D.C. She specializes in representing PAM plaintiffs under the False Claims Act and in state false claims laws. Uh, She was with the Commercial Litigation Branch of the Civil Division of Maine Justice between 1990 and 1999, as a trial attorney for the for six years, and between 1997 and 1999, as a senior counsel for health care fraud, handling policy and legislative matters, and coordinating the Civil Division's health care fraud enforcement efforts with other government agencies. Before that, she was with Arnold and Porter. And currently, Ms. Slade is on the boards of Taxpayers Against Fraud and the Potomac Conservancy. Uh, next to Ms. Slade, we have Andrew Grosso. Mr. Grosso is a principal attorney with the law firm of Andrew Grosso & Associates, also here in Washington, D.C. Before starting his own firm, Mr. Grosso was an assistant United States attorney in Tampa, Florida, and in Boston, Massachusetts, where he concentrated in prosecuting federal program fraud and computer crimes. Currently, his firm practices in the areas of Internet law and security advising corporations on federal compliance issues, and representing whistleblowers in False Claims Act and anti-retaliation lawsuits. Uh, He chairs the Science, Technology, and Forensics Committee for the ABA Criminal Justice Section. Mr. Grosso is a member of the Committee for the International Freedom of Scientists of the American Physical Society, and he's a member of the Executive Council for the National Policy Committee of the Association for Computing Machinery. Uh, Mr. Grosso and Ms. Slade, as you might imagine, are here representing the relators and the largely the proponents of the amendments before, the, uh, before Congress, because uh, I believe the panel can correct me if I'm wrong, but all of the proposed amendments would go towards expanding liability under, under the False Claims Act. Uh,
2: for for the defense, we have uh, Marsha Madsen.
1: Uh, she is a partner in the Washington office of Mayor Brown, where she practices in the area of government contracts and litigation. Uh, The practice includes assisting companies with audits, internal investigations, and the defense of False Claims Act actions. Uh, Ms. Madsen advises companies regarding ethics and compliance, including the design and implementation of compliance programs. Uh, Ms. Madsen was appointed in 2005 by the Executive Office of the President to chair the Acquisition Advisory Panel, uh, which issued a report to the Administration and Congress in July of 2007, she has testified before Congress on several occasions regarding the panel's recommendations for reform of the federal acquisition system. Many of the panel's recommendations have been adopted in statute of regulation uh, or regulation. She chairs the Federalist Society's Government Contracts Committee and is a past chair of the ABA section for public contract law. And finally on our panel, to your far right, we have Jonathan Diesenhaus from Hogan & Hartson, uh, Mr. Diesenhaus is a partner in the healthcare investigation and white collar practice at Hogan & Hartson since late 2005. Uh, he has been a litigator specializing in healthcare fraud and abuse for 17 years. Uh, before coming to Hogan & Hartson, Mr. Diesenhaus was senior trial counsel at the Department of Justice, Civil Division Fraud Section, and a founding member of the Pharma Fraud Initiative with a special emphasis in using the False Claims Act as a remedy for violations of statutes governing marketing practices. And financial relationships—that uh, is, kickbacks. Mr. House, in his current iteration, advises the American Hospital Association, universities, and the trade group Pharma on the implications of the False Claims Act Correction Act uh, on healthcare and research grants, which is the subject of our discussion here today. The format for our discussion today—and I, I do hope it's a discussion—is going to be to have. Approximately five to six issues on which our panelists will give remarks in a point and counterpoint format, in each instance giving the first point to the proponents of change, that is the Relators Council on the panel, uh, to be followed up by uh, rebuttals from our Defense Council, and we are going to save as much time as possible for questions from the floor, hoping that there is some engagement in, in that regard. The general topics that we'll be addressing today... Uh, first, an introduction that will focus on why or why not the, the Federal False Claims Act needs amending and some of the policy issues implicit in that. The changes or proposed changes in liability under the proposed laws. Uh, changes in damages under the proposed amendments. Uh, the changes in bases for governmental dismissal, whether it's under the public disclosure bar or the government employee as a relator provisions of the proposed amendments, statute of limitations, and finally, time allowing, uh, employee retaliation, and civil investigative demands. And so to turn it to our panel, uh, from the relator side, uh, I believe we have opening remarks on, on the first topic, which is essentially why we're here.
2: Good afternoon. Um, First, I'd like to thank the Federalist Society for putting together this panel on this very important and topical subject and for inviting me to participate on the panel. Uh, I understand that members of the Federalist Society may have different views on the merits of this particular piece of legislation and on the False Claims Act in general. I do however believe that the key TAM provisions, aspects of which are improved by this legislation, are fully consistent with one of the core values of the Federalist Society, and that is allowing the citizenry to retain as many rights as possible. That principle and the principle that we should maintain a healthy skepticism about the willingness and the ability of our government to fairize and redress on a consistent basis, corruption, and fraud, and government programs is also a key underpinning of the KETAM provision. I'm going to start out discussing the presentment issue, which is one of the um, issues addressed in the amendments to the liability provisions of the False Claims Act. And this issue involves um, the basic question, should the Act cover false claims that are submitted to third parties that are either administering programs or performing contracts on behalf of the U.S. or using U.S. funds. Should these claimants be liable under the False Claims Act as their actions adversely impact the Treasury, or should they be given a free pass solely on the basis that they don't interact directly with the Federal Government? Mm -hmm. Senate Bill 2041 would ensure the former that a person would be liable for knowing false claims for U.S. funds whether or not he or she or it was in contractual privity with the United States government. On this issue, as with some of the other amendments in the bill that we're going to discuss today, Senate Bill 2041 merely clarifies the current law to enable the law to function as Congress originally intended when it amended the law in 1986. It does not expand the law. This clarification is necessary because of an adverse court decision, which I will talk about in a minute. In 1986, Congress added the following definition of claim to the law, and this is key to understand the history. It defined claim to include any request or demand, whether under a contract or otherwise, for money or property which is made to a contractor, grantee, or other recipient if the United States provides any portion of the money or property which is requested or demanded, or if the government will reimburse such contract or grantee or other recipient for any portion of the money or property which is requested or demanded. At the time, Congress added some legislative history to explain what it meant to do here, and that was to make sure that the Act covered, for example, a false claim for reimbursement under the Medicare, Medicaid, or similar program. Those programs are administered by intermediaries, so claims don't go into the federal government. They go into intermediaries. Congress also stated in the legislative history, the committee did, a false claim to a recipient of a grant from the United States or to a state under a program financed in part by the United States should be covered. In the legislative history, it's also stated in 86 that the False Claims Act should cover claims that are submitted to state, local, or private programs funded in part by the United States where there is significant federal regulation and involvement. Regrettably, however, in 1986, Congress left in the statute inexplicably language that, in the liability provisions, that required presentment of the claim to a U.S. government employee or official. It also left in language that required a false statement um, made in, uh, to get a false claim paid or accrued by the U.S. government. Notwithstanding this confusing possible contradiction in the law as amended in 86, The law worked just fine until 2005 in this area. The government brought and settled actions against Medicaid and Medicare providers, (coughs) subcontractors, and subgrantees. In 2005, however, which was a very bad year for the False Claims Act um, in terms of the jurisprudence, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit rendered an explosive uh, decision that was 100% contrary to the legislative intent behind the 1986 amendments. The case was U.S. Ex-Rail Totten v. Bombardier Corporation. The majority opinion was offered by Judge Roberts, who is now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, Judge Roberts felt that it was, of course, necessary to give meaning to the present language in the liability provision. Um, but he also felt that he could do so um, and at the same time give meaning to the definition of claim. He didn't believe there was an ambiguity in looking at those two provisions together. So he held that if a false claim is submitted to a third party, it must be re presented to the U.S. government in order for liability to arise under A1 and also under A2. But the bar has different views on Judge Roberts, um, Justice Roberts now, opinion. Some feel he was wrong not to recognize the ambiguity in the current False Claims Act, that he should have done so and should have looked at the legislative history. Um, others feel that really got it right that these statutory provisions aren't necessarily in conflict and can be interpreted together. No matter which view you hold, however, it's hard to disagree with two things. One, interpreting this aspect of the statute is not easy. In fact, during his confirmation hearings, um, Justice, Justice Roberts stated, quote, It's certainly possible that the majority in that case didn't get it right. And the defense, that was a very strong defense, did get it right. I'm happy to concede that it was among the more difficult cases I've had over the past two years. The second thing that can't be disputed is that the decision is squarely at odds with the 1986 legislative history. And as as was feared by many on the plaintiff's side, the Clinton decision by the D.C. Court of Appeals led to a number of decisions that threatened to seriously undermine the government's battle against fraud and that contradict legislative history various lower courts have held the False Claims Act can't be used to redress Medicaid or Medicare fraud because the claims go into intermediaries. In the Allison Engines case, which was recently heard by the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, um, the lower court had held that the fact that the subcontractor um, that provided a defective generator for a Navy warship um, couldn't be pursued under the False Claims Act because its claim went into the prime contractor. While it whether a false certification to the U.S. government if claim had not gone directly into the government. Well, to fix this problem, Senate Bill 2041 does several things, but most importantly, it removes from the liability sections the requirement that false claims must be presented to a U.S. government official or agent or be paid or approved by the United States. Is this change a good one? Absolutely. Um, as long as a fraud user knows that so he, she, or it is taking actions that cause the government to pay out money that it would otherwise not be willing to pay out, there is no reason to endorse this conduct, solely on the technicality that the fraud user submitted a false claim to an intermediary. Simply stated, there is no principled reason for elevating the form of a transaction over the substance. And I'm going to turn to Andy now to talk about um, a second change to the liability provisions dealing with um, government administered funds.
0: Hey, Lynn. How about if we do presentment separate? Now that I hear that it's pretty contained, can I respond on presentment first? Sounds um, good. Okay. <coughs> um, see, we practiced this very well ahead of time. Uh, <coughs> the the presentment issue ends up being it's, this is really a drafting problem, and it's a, it ends up to be a major drafting problem. And I disagree, of course, with Shelley on a number of fronts. Um, <laughs> And, and the first being that this is a clarification. Um, what is described as a presentment issue is really a, a very significant and broad expansion of the statute to cover a number of transactions which, um, in my work with the AHA, we're referring to as private transactions, downstream transactions, um, about that include dollars that have nothing to do with the federal government anymore. <coughs> because the federal government set up programs to separate themselves, itself, from those dollars. And really, you start with Totten. There's another case, which I guess Andy will discuss in a minute, Custer Battles. But we're dealing with a series of anomalous cases, bad facts, a little bit of bad lawyering, um, and those are being offered up as cover for a a wholesale relay and expansion of the statute. Um, An example is Totten. Totten involved Amtrak. Amtrak is a congressionally founded corporation set up specifically to be outside of the United States government so that it could behave in certain ways and the United States could divorce itself from liability from Amtrak for certain reasons. Well, claims submitted to Amtrak are claims submitted to a corporation. They are not claims submitted to the United States. Amtrak's contract with Bombardier, it was a contract with a corp- between two corporations in which, if there was a dispute, there's a lot of law out there to deal with it. That dispute didn't need to be brought into the false claims act, and, and more significantly, that dispute didn't need a whistleblower to poach. And that's what my main concern is: is that as we move downstream, as Justice Breyer said in the Allison engine argument. If a dollar that was ever a federal dollar remained a federal dollar, then there's federal dollars in everything. There has to be a point in time where the violation of law that subjects you to penalties impacts the federal government and, it, and its, either its personnel or its expenditures. Totten was about this private contract. If private disputes, like between an ambulance company and a hospital, can be brought into federal court by a whistleblower to recover trouble damages uh, by uh, this whistleblower who doesn't have to be a party to the transaction, then if I'm the hospital and the ambulance company stole from me and I can't rebuild the federal government for the money, a whistleblower comes in, sues on the United States behalf recovers federal damages and takes 30% of it. That's a taking as far as I'm concerned. That's my money. It's not the government's money, and you shouldn't get a third of it because it's my dispute with the ambulance company. The reason that happened is that hospitals like Amtrak are paid and then the government gets out of it. A hospital is paid $1,000 to treat a particular disease category and the the hospital has no recourse with respect to that particular Medicare patient if the costs exceed $1,000. The United States is divorced from the transaction. And so the fact that it's a Medicare patient that gets transported by the ambulance company is, is irrelevant to the circumstances that we're talking about, which are financial transactions that actually involve the government. And because the... The, the statute defines things so broadly already. The money is money that went to the downstream contractor before it was paid out on a false claim, or it's money that is only paid after the false claim passes through to the downstream contractor to the United States. The problem with the bill is that in address, seeking to address cotton and a couple of other problems, the language is so broad... That you really can have this scenario where downstream disputes, regardless of their impact on the public fist, can be brought in under the statute. Um, some of you have on your seat, I think they put it on every other seat, a one pager. Um, being limited in time, um, I, I'm not going to walk you through each of the provisions, but this one pager does so um, <coughs> in a way that I, that I think should help you to understand. Something on the policy side to make note of. of the cases brought under this statute are not cases that are pursued by the whistleblower and their contingent fee attorney alone. 20% of the cases, under which, I forget the number now, $20 billion billion since since 1986 has come in, those are the government cases. 80% of the cases bring in 10% of the money, and even that's an inflated number because there are a couple of decline cases where criminal investigations led to recoveries even though the government stayed out of the civil case. But you're talking about a statute that is extraordinarily powerful, extraordinarily broad already. And you're talking about bad case law that was made in the 80%. Totten was a declined key cam. The Justice Department declined to intervene. The other cases that we'll be talking about today all were declined cases where the government elected in its discretion not to pursue the claim. Probably because of legal defects, the whistleblowers went forward on their own to try to broaden the statute, and the courts didn't go along with them. So now they're bringing these complaints to Congress, and there's a lot of danger in the language of these amendments. Before moving on
2: to Andy, just a few points with regard to the 80 percent versus the 20 percent. I just wanted to clarify. I mean, yes, it is true the government intervenes in about 20 percent of the temp cases that are brought. However, that remaining 80%, is a small fraction that go forward, nonetheless. Um, I don't have the stats. I'm not sure if Justice has published the stats, but it, it's just not the case that all 80% go forward. Many of them the whistleblower will voluntarily dismiss when the government investigates further and convinces the whistleblower that the facts were different as the whistleblower concluded. Or just for lack of resources. Um, so we're not talking about a huge number that go forward as decline cases. And secondly, I, I guess I dispute the premise that the federal government sets up intermediaries to separate itself from programs. I don't think that's true at all. I think the government sets up intermediaries because it can't itself administer all of these government programs. It needs to privatize aspects of the administration of the programs, but it's still its own money that's at risk, and it certainly doesn't intend just to send the taxpayer funds out of the door with no ability to recover the funds if they're stolen or um, misused. And, and yes, I think the rosters of this bill um, are concerned about frauds that have an impact on the public fisc. And we haven't gotten to the damages provision yet, too. But there, I do share some of Jonathan's concerns, but I think they're separate from the changes to the liability um, provision. Okay,
3: okay. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should be shocked. It right. uh, believe it or not, there was a time when he wore the hat of being a civil prosecutor for the Department of Justice there was a time where I wore a hat of being a criminal prosecutor for the Department of Justice. And one of the things that disturbed me when I changed my field was that many of the tools available to me as a prosecutor weren't there. And I did not i did not mean merely the lack of an FBI agent or a grand jury subpoena or a search warrant, uh, but the actual statutes that I could use, the causes of actions. Uh, for example, under the criminal code, Title 18, Section 641 and 666. Uh, If somebody gets a grant and then they misuse the grant after they've already gotten it, you can get that money and you can prosecute that person for unauthorized or misuse of that grant money. You can't do that under the False Claims Act. Uh, Why? You don't have a deception. To begin with, you need a lie or you need some kind of a knowing false statement. Uh, and also uh, there's a question as to whether as uh, Jonathan has has said the money has now gone downstream it's out of the control of the federal government it's out of the treasury you can't reach it anymore Um, I disagree with that and I had a case that that made this fairly concrete Uh, about 15 years ago uh, I guess I am getting out there for a while Uh, actually more like 13 years ago think about it uh, one of my first TTM cases had to do with a community college in Florida the government has a program where they will give educational grants block grants if you want to states the states will then divvy them up uh, under various formulas to educational institutes There's the, the purpose of the federal government having that program is to ensure that the money is put to certain purposes we want certain uh, colleges with uh, perhaps uh, certain minority groups to get this money or people who want to learn certain uh, uh, fields of expertise to get that money. What happens when you have a college that lies in the statistics presented to the state in order to get a bigger share of the pie than it's entitled to? Under Jonathan's theory, uh, that should not be reachable by the False Claims Act. Why? Because the money is downstream. As a former prosecutor, my view is the government had a purpose in where that money went. You lied. You took the money, you redirected it, even after it left the Federal Treasury. You should be held and liable for it. And that is what we are doing here with some of the changes that we have uh, in in these proposed amendments. Uh, We have expanded the reach of the False Claims Act so that knowing retention of overpayments will be included. That could be reachable on the criminal side. Uh, that could even be reachable uh, by the United States government under theories outside of causes of action uh, other than the False Claims Act. Knowing misuse and unauthorized use of government money or property would be reachable under the amendments. Uh, what we're really doing is adopting some of the theories that more creative Relators Council have, have proposed and courts have adopted such as implied certifications. Uh, we're expanding in some ways a reverse false claim. Uh, theory in the uh, current False Claims Act. Uh, we also talk about who administers of the money. Uh, I told you about the Seminole Community College case. In the Custa Battles case, we had a very interesting circumstance where some money that was uh, at issue in Iraq was clearly United States money. Some was not United States money. But the people who were uh, assigned to administer the funds were considered by the court to be acting outside of their role as government uh, employees or officers. So here was United States money going out the door on the false pretenses, not reachable because the person wearing a United States uniform was considered to be not acting as a United States officer. And I think that misconstrues what the False Claims Act is about in its intent, if not in the actual drafting of the language. Uh, another uh, example was a case that I was involved in uh, United States against the United States at Campbell against Lockheed Martin where a lot of the money was foreign money that was being held in the United States treasury in a trust fund account uh, and then there was allegedly fraud where that money was released when it should not have been released uh, there the court ruled in our favor and said no this is a draw on the United States treasury and it should be why? Because this is in the possession, in the control of the United States. The United States has an interest in making sure it's used the way it's supposed to be used. So this Act, this, the, these amendments, will take the False Claims Act out of the, in the 1860s, when the Act was first uh, promulgated, uh, and will bring them up into the present world of how government uh, fiscal responsibility actually functions and how government programs actually operate. Thank you The, end, um,
0: <clears throat> the it, You can see that the two issues relate. and I'm going to focus on overpayment, but I'm going to make a couple of quick rebuttals. First, um, when Shelley refers to intermediaries and the government contracting out Administration of a program. There's no dispute in the case law that those situations are covered. There are a couple of district court decisions since Totten that hold that certain aspects of the Medicare programs are outside, but they are quickly becoming the minority. The Southern District of New York, in an extremely well reasoned opinion just last week, held that Medicaid is in. So. Medicaid and Medicare, you know, no one has ever disputed that they're covered and but that contractors you know, covered.
2: The researchers are responded on litigating these issues.
0: Well, then let's say that Medicare and Medicaid are covered by the False Claims Act. But the language that we're using are, is, is that, that is being used in the in the legislation is so broad and tr- and makes an attempt to cover all these various situations plus others that the unintended consequences of the legislation are just vast. And it is creative related attorneys and creative DOJ attorneys. You know, I was all over implied certification when I was at the department and really should have no right to be in this room. But <laughs> you know, yeah. you know the, the, the problem is that we're trying to deal with some cases that dealt with very specific situations which, with extremely broad language and two different problems. The first problem we talked about was money that the United States gave to somebody to handle in some way. Um, and at a certain point divorced itself from the transaction. This problem is money that the United States may administer but it was never its money. In both cases, the question isn't whether there is a remedy for fraud because the common law, state law, there are remedies for fraud. There are a lot of lawsuits out there for fraud. The question is whether the Civil False Claims Act that could be brought either by an assistant attorney in federal court or a whistleblower in federal court is the remedy for all those frauds. And I just submit that it's not. I'm very proud of the work I did. I had tons of work to do and I think they still have it over there. There are plenty of cases that involve actual federal money. But the United States government set up with its coalition partners, the coalition provisional authority, over there, so that it wouldn't be the United States. And there were a whole bunch of rules and regulations that didn't apply to it because it was over there. A, des- a policy decision was made to separate that entity into loaned employees who were coalition provisional authority yes. employees. If you don't like that policy decision, take that up, but don't change the False Claims Act because of a failure of proof in one particular case. And the problem with all these amendments is that they will not be used to pursue the little guy who no longer exists or is, um, or, or is now bankrupt in Iraq who defrauded the coalition provisional authority. They will be used to, to sue the bricks and mortar companies that we rely on to provide us health care. Fifty percent of the cases under this statute are health care cases. They don't have anything to do with Iraq and yet we're going to amend the whole statute because some people stole some money from the coalition that we decided wouldn't be the United States. That's that's really what happens at bottom here. And so the, the issue really is who sues? Is it a of or is it the country of Iraq from whom someone stole? Or Amtrak from whom someone stole? I agree with Andy, As prosecutor, it's often frustrating if... Something, some bad act that came to your attention is outside your jurisdiction. But at least in the cases I view in the Medicaid context, thanks to legislation um, two years ago, states all over the country are passing their own KTM statutes. So if the block grant money that is stolen is money we gave to the block grant because we wanted the state to administer it in the state's way, the state can sue. And in those twenty states where there are key statutes, the whistleblower can sue on behalf of the state in state court. But it doesn't need to be here in Washington with the Attorney General and in the U.S. Attorney's Offices, if it's not about federal money, it's not about federal funds. And so if you think about it that way, then you can draft things much tighter. And actually you should be doing the drafting in the programs. Now I'm not sure about any grant fraud cases, but if you look in the case I have a lot of grant fraud cases that are already covered. And yes. Outside of a block grant context, in a research grant context, where a lot of good work is being done, there are a bunch of certifications along the way. So the money goes out the door at the beginning of the year, but the researcher has to certify compliance with law and to progress under the grant and to appropriate use of the funds repeatedly over the, the life of the grant. Those are false certifications. They're inside the statute. And I'm in the process of settling two grant drug cases, and I don't think I'm so stupid. Those actually are cases. So, um, the, I don't mean to, it is illusory to think that Medicare and Medicaid are going to fall out of the statute because of Tottenham. Or grant fraud is going to fall out of the statute. Um, otherwise, just like some suggest we will, the courts will sort out the new language, the courts will sort out those old cases, those few cases that are a minority of cases where the courts have sought to dismiss on um, uh, difficult or strained interpretations of Totten and Custer Battles. And one, one last thing, I'm into these cases, we can get into the details at another time, but there was a failure of proof by the relator in each case. To say that Allison Engine is a holding that a vast array of transactions are outside of the False Claims Act is, is not accurate. In Allison Engine. The relator chose not to take discovery and not to prove that the contractor submitted a subcontractor's invoice to the Department of Defense. Not until Supreme Court argument did the relator's counsel say, you know, I could have, because the contract said they had to submit those invoices, but he didn't do it at trial, so he lost. That's what
2: happened. Yeah, well, my understanding is different. Is he didn't submit the claims that the prime submitted to the Navy, but those who weren't to, uh, his Client's claim. And he did it during the trial present a Navy official who said that the Navy had relied upon this, this false certification regarding whether the generator met specs. So I think he invested a lot more in the trial, indicating the joint appendix than is commonly understood. Who knows whether he adequately overlooked that in the decision uh, uh, of the third? I don't know. I'm <laughs> directly the trial on a failure of yeah. proof, not on a question
0: of yeah. law. So...
4: Andy, you have any <coughs> rebuttal on this issue? Would you like you Shelley I, 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 to go to Shelly and Dave? President Marshall, uh, Andy promised me two seconds, even oh, though... I, I'll lose uh, uh, my time for the loyal
2: opposition. <laughs> <laughs> <position>. <laughs> even though presentment
4: um, and overpayment actually weren't on, weren't on my list. Um, I was just going to make a couple of brief comments. Um, for, for government contractors, and that's kind of the hat that I'm wearing today, as opposed to the healthcare hat. Uh, typically, um, outside a couple of odd situations that you've heard about today, presentment's not an issue because the 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 the, the invoices, the cost of the government contractor subcontract go to the government. They're part of what the prime contractor invoices, so you don't have these issues. The reason that you've got issues in in top, in, in, uh, in Allison Engine, and I, I think I'm more inclined to agree with Jonathan, you've got a proof problem that is just not going to happen in your normal government contract situation. So if you're, what we're doing here with the bill is legislating in a very broad sense, changing the entire definition of claim to address a case that... Is by itself not a problem, and that we have the same. I've got a question for Andy about the Custer Battles case. I think um, again, it's one that is outside uh, outside the issues because it's the coalition provisional authority, and even with even with the legislation, it's not clear to me it's going to fix it because the coalition um, has in it. Other countries. It has representatives of other countries at the CPA. It has money from the Iraqi government. It's not appropriated funds from the United States. So I'm not, I don't think the, the legislation is necessarily going to take care of that problem. So again, because if, if it's a British citizen who's processing those claims, are we going to get a different answer than if it's a, an army officer who's on loan to the CPA? It just makes no sense, and the legislation isn't going to get at that. Um, so we've got basically two cases who are outliers, and they're being used as an excuse to change the entire uh, regime under the statute. I'm, I'm, I've got other issues I'm supposed to talk about, so I'll be quiet. And I left out know.
0: two seconds. Two more seconds for okay. overpayment. Sorry to filibuster, but I left out the most important part for hospitals, and I won't, I won't hear the end of it. The, the problem with the, the fix on overpayments is that the statute declares a, the retention of an overpayment to be a violation of the False Claims Act if you knowingly retain. Um, The amendment effectively eliminates any actus reus from proving a violation. In a hospital context, the hospital receives payment um, more than it billed, for example. It receives payment not on a false claim, but it receives payment it wasn't supposed to receive. It is now in violation of the statute on the actus rea side of the equation. It retains a payment. So as soon as you get money in your bank account, you violated the statute if they can show you that you know that you have money you shouldn't have. Well, the problem there is you get collective knowledge doctrine, and you have a reckless disregard standard of knowledge under this statute. And so, as a prosecutor, I love to find the rule book, the Medicare rule book that the billers had in their desk that was dog-eared and underlined and... Highlighted, showed they used it, showed they knew the knew the rules. Well, then the corporation has knowledge of the rule, and if the corporation has dollars over here in a bank account that came in under a, an explanation of benefits that said it received more money than it asked for, I've got proof that they knew or should have known they had money they shouldn't have. While it's generally right that we should expect providers to pay back money they're not entitled to, the problem is the system relies on employees telling their bosses that there's money in the bank account that shouldn't be there. But now those employees have an incentive to sue first and to recover between 15 and 30 percent of what they uh, report to the government. So compliance plans... You can teach all you want to teach. But now, actually, in the Medicaid context, the statute requires you to teach people how to file key So if if my biller messed up three times, and he's on probation, and he's out, and he discovers that he messed up, and now they have money in the bank account that they shouldn't have, and he knows that if he turns himself in, he's going to get fired. What's he going to do? This is a whistleblower-enforced statute, and it's particularly problematic when... You expand the statute to cover overpayments that don't require any fraudulent conduct, that don't require what the statute now requires. That you submit a statement to the United States that says you don't have something you're supposed to have, or that you're paying back everything you're supposed to pay back. At least when there's a piece of paper, a statement, to cover up the retention of an overpayment you're not supposed to have, you have an access race, and you have more people involved than just a whistleblower who can file the minute the money hits the bank account.
3: Maybe if you
1: could like respond, and we'll discuss about how to address the remaining issues. and still have time for questions from um, the floor.
3: I'm debating um, <laughs> if we have time. I'm coming back at you, but let's let's move <coughs> on. <laughs> let's, we've got a lot more issues to have. I'll well, so, be quiet for the rest. And, of and, and, and with your with your indulgence,
1: I'll close a three minute time on each side to discuss damages
0: or four minutes, if you like.
1: I think we supposed
2: to my part in about
0: 90 seconds.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i <by>. Okay, <clears throat> maybe two minutes. Um, and this is an area in which I suspect the key PAN counsel on this panel will at least be in part in agreement with the defense counsel. The current False Claims Act provides for a remedy that is three times the amount of damages which the government sustains because of the act of that person. Basically, the provision has worked uh, just fine. However, Senate Bill 2041 replaces it with the following language, three times the amount of money or property paid or approved because of the act of that person. Now, believe it or not, us on the town side, we also want to see some nexus to the federal fisc. Um, We think that should be an aspect of these cases. We should be recovering money that the federal government has has taken from it um, improperly. Um, This provision is overbroad in some ways and it's too narrow in others. Um, And in my view, it's it's badly drafted. Um, How is it overbroad? Well, first, um, it doesn't specify what should be done when only part of the false claim made to the government grantee, for example, was paid with U.S. funds. So you could have a government grantee, say a museum, that uses 10% of, um, uh, to, to pay the claim using 10% government money and 90% uh, other sort of philanthropic money. Under the laws now drafted, given the definition of claim, there's a remedy of treble times the whole value of the claim, even though only 10% came from federal money. I think that it's overbroad, it's interpreted that way. Secondly, I think it also is possibly overbroad, in that it doesn't specify what should happen when a claim is approved but not paid. The language right now talks about three times the amount of money or property paid or approved. So you can have a claim that comes in, that gets approved, but the government never disperses it, and there's a remedy for three times the amount of that approved claim. seems potentially overbroad. How is it too narrow. Well, right now, it doesn't specify how to compute damages when the government's financial harm vastly exceeds the value of a particular claim. Say you have somebody that notably supplies a defective helicopter part that isn't tested as required, that uses you know materials that are other than the specified materials, and the whole helicopter crashes because of that part, and that's all proven. The, the government in that situation is damaged in the value of the helicopter and possibly even more. There their lives that are lost. Um, The current provision would not cover um, or does not clearly cover that sort of situation. Fourth problem in terms of how it's too narrow is that it doesn't, the current provision doesn't specify how damages would be computed when the violation involves the wrongful retention of an overpayment that we've just been discussing. In that situation, you're retaining an overpayment, but the wrongful act wasn't the original claim. So you don't have a claim that's paid or approved that you can treble. And that provision, as currently drafted, doesn't, doesn't clearly uh, address how to handle that situation. Hopefully,
3: that was about 120 seconds or so. Can I, can I, can I contradict my co-counsel? <laughs> it
2: would be entertaining <laughs> to <see you laughs> There's one
3: part where I disagree with Shelley, and that has to do when you mix federal funds with the funds of some other entity, such as in the museum example that you gave. Uh, and again, it goes back to what I was talking about when I first uh, spoke, uh, the purpose of a federal program. If the federal government decides that a museum's uh, uh, exhibit is important enough that the taxpayer's money should be used, then that, the, the money that is used to put on that exhibit in total should be protected and should be protected by the False Claims Act because you're looking at the purpose of the program as well as the amount of dollars that, it, that goes out the door. So I, I think that that is an appropriate way to, to not, only, not only on a... Uh, appropriate protection to give, but an appropriate measure of damages. Um, it, 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 it's, it's sort of like, I have one pitcher of water from one one locale and another pitcher of water from another, and I mix the two and you can't get them apart. That's the way it should be. We're protecting the purpose that the federal government embarked on this program. Uh, everything else? You're fine. Marsha?
4: Um, I was interested in listening to Andy. I think before I jump into damages, I think one of the Questions and it's an interesting question for people, at the federal society that this debate raises is maybe the government shouldn't be involved in some of these programs, but, but that's, a, that's maybe a topic for a different day. Uh, with respect to damages, um, uh, the, the language that, uh, that Shelley read, um, uh, the, the current statute says that in section 3729A. That a person who violates the statute's subsidy provisions is liable for trouble the amount of damages that the government sustains because of the act of the person. And the legislative history of the 86 amendments is clear that Congress intended that the United States should be afforded a full and complete recovery of its damages. The Supreme Court has said in the Bornstein case that the FCA measures damages as the difference between the value of the goods or services provided to the government and what it was entitled to receive. And even if there's a violation of the FDA that doesn't involve damages, there are still statutory penalties that can be recovered. The problem with the change in the law, and Shelley read it to you, is is that the bill says that what can be recovered is three times the amount of money or property paid or approved because of the act of that person. In a government contracts context, and I think in some other federal programs context, this change is huge. It means that there doesn't need to be a loss. Um, Andy talked a minute ago about implied certifications. Um, I, I don't know how many of you in the room work in the government contracts area. I know some do. But just to give you an example, the Federal Acquisition Regulation is um, 16 volumes. It contains tons of regulations. It contains tons of opportunities for implied certifications. Um, any of those certifications, particularly if they are made in the, uh, or any of those regulations that apply the period of contract formation, could result in the entire value of the contract being troubled under this standard. So the, the change is huge. And I think some of the, actually, I, I, I won't speak uh, uh, as to why um, Shelley said it was, it was maybe too broad and why the relator side would be concerned about it, but I think one of the potential infirmities it has is it's so broad and it's so detached from actual losses that it actually may present uh, Eighth Amendment problems, and there'll be a lot of litigation about whether it's excessive. So that's my quick uh, my quick response on the damage decision. The remaining
1: issues that we have on the table that I'd like to get done before 1:30, so we can open up questions from the floor at 1:30, are the public disclosure bar and the changes to that, the uh, government employees acting as the relator, and the statute of limitations are the ones that I would like to try to get through in the very remaining few minutes before half past. So I think. Um, Andy, you have prepared remarks relating to the public disclosure bar changes.
3: Well, actually, that's Shelley's. I apologize. I'm going to handle the government employees. Sure. As, as you will. Whoever would like to go first? Let's go ahead. Okay. Um, the amendments would allow government employees to be related. Now, this is a really hot button issue, particularly with the Department of Justice. The feeling is, you're getting a federal paycheck. Whatever you learn. And whatever you do should be uh, on behalf of the, of the United States, and you should not be out there soon separately becoming an independent IEG and should not be getting a second paycheck out of the False Claims Act. Uh, I sympathize. I disagree. Uh, what the Act does, is, or the amendments do, is that it permits government employees to be relators Uh, except that the federal government has a right to go in within 60 days and dismiss the action out, um, under two conditions. One, if all necessary and specific allegations in such action were derived from an open and active fraud investigation. This is going to keep everybody litigating very happy for the next 15 to 20 years. Necessary, specific, open and active. Even the definition of fraud investigation is going to be debated. Or if the employee is one who learns his information from his job. Uh, and this happens a lot. I get many, many phone calls from people in this circumstance. And none of the following occurred. I'd love double and triple negatives. Um, if uh, he, Let's put it into a positive if he's in this situation, if he wanted it from his job, he's going to have to first provide a written disclosure to the Office of the Inspector General for him, from his agency with a written disclosure to both the Attorney General or to his supervisor. Or if there's no IG in his agency, he's got to send a written disclosure to the Attorney General with written notification to a supervisor. Then the government's got 12 months to get its act together, uh, and decide whether it's going to file an action, um, and if it doesn't, he's in. He can pursue his keep him. Uh However, the attorney general can go to court uh, for an extension, and the employee has a right to contest the extension. It's very convoluted, and the question, first question, is why allow it? And the reason why you allow it is that very often agencies are reluctant to blow the whistle on themselves. When I was a prosecutor. Uh, the, one of the biggest hurdles I had to get over was getting the person who was in charge of approving the, fraud, uh, the, the, uh, the decisions that resulted in the government being defrauded. Yes, you paid that bill. Yes, you approved that contract. No, I was not fooled. No, I am not a fool. No, I was not irresponsible with the public fisc. Well, there I am in my office. I have the American flag here. I have the Department of Justice Eagle there. I have an FBI agent in that corner of the room and an OIG agent in that corner of the room. And we put the documents in front of the witness and it doesn't take very long for the person to decide, yeah, I messed up. I was fooled. They lied to me. That doesn't happen when you're not in that scenario. The agencies are self-protective. Uh, This is human nature, and this is an an attempt to allow a determined employee to break through that and submit a written disclosure to the OIG and to the AG and even to the supervisor and get the ball rolling. It may not result in a false claims action. Uh, The department may dismiss it out. The department may take it over under their own auspices and not let the employee go forward. But it permits you to get the ball rolling. Is there a contrary side to this? Yes, I admit it. There could be a conflict of interest. You have an employee who's sitting there saying, I could make a mint and retire. I don't have to put up with that supervisor anymore. Uh, how, do, how do you prevent this conflict of interest? You have to go to the OIG. You have to go to the AGA. You've got to go to the supervisor. There are all sorts of checks and balances that have been put into the process. It is not perfect. I do think it is valid. Marsha?
4: Sure. Um, I was curious to see whether anyone was going to actually defend this provision. Um, uh, probably, the, um, as Andy said, the, the most uh, startling provision in the amendments is the provision that would, um, that would allow government employees to act as relators. Um, when the bill was introduced, it had uh, really uh, nothing in, in, in the way of, uh, to speak of, of even the fig leaf, I think, of things that have been added to it. Um, there have been, as the bill was reported from committee, the two things that added are the um, open and active investigation point, which I think will be, as he said, an issue to be happily litigated, but doesn't really offer any protection. And that it also provides that um, uh, agency employees who are or government employees who are in the in basically in the investigation business uh, can't can't be relators. Otherwise, anybody can be a relator uh the the potential impact on the government of having all of its employees running around out there looking for opportunities to get a, a bonus paycheck for um, uh finding for doing their jobs basically Uh, It's just, it's it's inconceivable, an inconceivable conflict of interest. And it's it's just, it's hard to imagine how it could be justified. Uh, The Justice Department is opposed to this provision. Under current law, um, government employees technically can be relators, but because of the public disclosure bar and because it's hard for them to be an original source, um, it's unusual for them to be uh, actually to get through as as relators. So while It's it's theoretically possible it's not a common occurrence. The legislation would make it very easy for a government employee to become a relator. So your contracting officer, your contracting officer's technical representative, the price price analysis person on your government contract, your grants administrator, all those people are potential relators. What company in their right mind would give information to the government? under those circumstances. And for the government people in the room, think about the effect on your programs. How how is an agency going to manage its business when senior agency management makes a judgment call, wants to to implement a program in a particular way, and the first thing they find is that there's a key TAM that is opposing um, the way that they want to run their program. It's it's just inconceivable. As long as the statute's open, I've got a counter-proposal, let's just make it clear that government relators are prohibited
0: period Judge Lambert said in the Columbia ACA cases to the effect of that the key camp statute doesn't mean everybody gets a bonus but sometimes your satisfaction as a patriot comes from being a witness and turning bad guys in and you don't get paid for it Um, that should be the way and nothing stops a federal employee of the army or HHS or CMS. From doing exactly what Andy says, reporting it to the IG, reporting it to DOJ, the only thing they don't get today, or the only thing they have to fight for today, is a share of the government's recovery. As a taxpayer, that's okay with me. Well, if we can go on,
1: I'd like to get at least everybody's positions on the records before going into questions. We're at about a half past now on the public disclosure box. In the statutes limitations, although I know you're dying to rebut that.
2: Sure. Um, okay. So I should turn to public disclosure? Yes, you could. I'd like to very quickly
1: get people's positions <laughs> on the record and then open it up to questions from the floor. Okay.
2: Um, okay, Senate Bill 2041 tosses out entirely the current public disclosure provision in the False Claims Act, which I'm sure most of you here are familiar with. Um, but just to be stated briefly, that provision deprives the court of jurisdiction. Whenever a key case is based on the public disclosure of allegations or transactions in the media or in some sort of a congressional administrative or judicial hearing report or proceeding, the only exception is when the relator is an original source of the information in his lawsuit, which is defined as someone with direct and independent knowledge of the information who's gone to the government before filing suit. Senate Bill 2041 um, replaces that old bar, or would replace that old bar with a, a new one that would permit the government, and only the government, to move to dismiss the Keef case when it's already conducting an active investigation or audit of substantially the same matter involving the same wrongdoer at the time the Keef was is filed. It would also provide a basis for dismissal if there was a media or congressional um, publication concerning substantially the same matter Substantial and the same wrongdoer that came out before the KETAM and that led the government to initiate um, an audit or investigation within 90 days. The new bar would not apply in two circumstances. One, when the KETAM relator had gone to the government before the investigation or audit was started or before the publication in the media or in the congressional uh, reports or hearing. Um, And two, when the relator brought in information providing a substantially new basis for recovery. From the relator's perspective, this is one of the most important changes in the bill. It's not a perfect provision. We think it it could be improved. However, it's much better than the current public disclosure bar. Um, Most importantly, because it takes that cudgel out of the hands of the defendants and gives it to the government. Um, to the public disclosure bar has very rarely been invoked by the government. The very entity that Congress intended uh, to protect this bar is intended to uh, prevent parasitic suits that were duplicating work that the government had already done or was in the process of doing. Instead, the Fairmans, who have no legitimate interest in using the public disclosure bar, have used it time and time again to try to delay adjudication of the merits or to escape liability altogether. Um, due to some ambiguous language in the current public disclosure bar, there are an array of confounding and conflicting cases on the books. Um, since 86, there have been more than 192 rulings and 103 separate cases on um, questions about the interpretation of the bar. So there's always something that could be relied upon by a Senate in support of the most tenuous um, public disclosure argument. So why is the new provision in the public interest? For first, first It will allow more of the meritorious decline cases, and believe me there are a lot of those, to proceed, as defendants will be permitted to use public disclosure as a weapon to avoid or or delay um, a finding of liability. Secondly, it will adequately control control the risk of parasitic cases going forward. If a case is truly parasitic, in that the government already is actively prosecuting a fraud case, conducting an audit or investigation in the same matter, then the government have every incentive to dismiss the K-TAM based on this spot and can be relied upon to do so. On the other hand, if the government neither intervenes in the matter nor moves to dismiss it, these actions speak for itself. The government just doesn't care about the situation. Um, it has no interest in pursuing a case on its own um, based on whatever might be in the public domain or at issue in some government audit. And the K-TAM then is much explicit. Of a pre existing government um, activity um, and accepts the Supreme Court in any way. Third, um, the new broad will reduce the burden on the courts, and this will be a substantial reduction in the burden by reducing the number of pre trial motions uh, brought by defendants. And finally, it will reduce the financial costs and the risks to relators of pursuing false claim back cases and recovering funds that have been stolen from the taxpayers. Okay.
4: Um, I was tempted to ask uh, uh, what what the real reason is for the proposed legislative change um, because it's in in the policy debate that's taking place, you haven't really heard an articulation of the reason. Uh, But I think Shelley actually stated it. It's that defendants are successful with public disclosure challenges. Um, And so there's a a real lobbying effort underway to get the statute changed so that they, they can't be used. I mean, I want you to remember that what we're talking about here is that 80% of the cases that the Justice Department declines to intervene in. So that, that's where the, the defendant's ability to challenge whether the relator actually is bringing new information to the table that is meaningful is at issue. That's where those challenges are made. And they as Shelley said, they are um, they are often successful. They're not always successful. But what they do is they avoid a parasitic a parasitic suit, which is where the relayer comes in, using information that is that is known, and basically gets a share of a recovery for not contributing anything to the investigative process that's new. Um, prior to the 1986 amendments. Um, there's a long history of this provision and time doesn't permit us to talk about it, but for, from the period to 1943 to 1986, actually, um, these kinds of suits were prohibited, these kinds of actions were prohibited, um, and there you couldn't, not the suits were prohibited, a, a relator couldn't bring a matter if it was publicly disclosed. The 86 amendments did a pretty good balancing job in the language that's in the current law of allowing um, a relator who's an original source to go forward with a case, even if, if the information is the allegations have been publicly disclosed, but otherwise prohibiting recoveries for people who just didn't bring anything new to the table. The change in the bill will eliminate the ability of defendants to challenge this at all. Uh, again, the defense, you're looking at, so we're looking at cases where the Justice Department's already taken a pass. They've looked at the case, they've decided it isn't worth, their, worth them bothering with. And now uh, the prosecution of the case is left up to the relator, and the, relator, the relator's bar basically wants to take away the ability of defendants to raise public disclosure. Um, there's, there's an impact on the defendants because. Uh, I think there was a mention made earlier that maybe not all of these cases go to trial, but there's a huge investigative and discovery process that goes on in these cases whether they ultimately go to trial or not. And because of the damages regime here, there's an intense pressure to settle the cases. So there's a lot of cost associated and a lot of risk associated for descendants if the cases are basically from fake whistleblowers. Uh, but there's a cost that's not recognized, and it's a cost to the government. Once the Justice Department says, we're out of here, we're not interested in this case, the government agencies whose, whose programs and whose contracts are involved are subject to discovery. It's their 10-year-old documents. It's their people who have to be witnesses. There's a tremendous cost here. And in addition to that, if the, if the uh, defendant is successful... Uh, the defendant can actually charge his comes back through to the government. So there's a big cost on the government itself and a risk to its programs for letting these, these frivolous whistleblower suits go forward. So there's really no need to change the statute. The statute in this particular respect is working very well as it is. Yeah, we're,
2: we're, we're, have you yeah Before going we to questions,
4: uh,
1: okay. I, I knew the frivolous yep.
0: lawsuits would, would, okay. would get okay. you, <laughs> you going. <laughs> well, so there's a resource issue, too, that Marjorie didn't mention. Just okay. do it really quick. Sure. And it, it makes you sure. laugh and shows that the government will step up because we work for the same boss at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And the Justice Department relies on defendants to make these motions because defendants have the resources. So if the Justice Department is going to be the only part of this triangle they can move to dismiss on this basis, they're going to need more lawyers. Even when I wanted to move to dismiss, I was told to move on to the next broad case. You know, that makes
4: sense. But uh, it agree. won't happen anymore.
2: I, I, I would well, agree. Yeah. 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 I, I agree that, yes, there is a big cost to the government when a case goes forward that's duplicative, that's using our government resources. However, DOJ... Um, has in the past, not often, but it has the ability to move to dismiss based on public disclosure, and as a practical matter, it doesn't involve much in the way of government resources because you have the defendants all too willing to write the briefs for the DOJ lawyers. They come in, get a meeting, say, look, we'll we'll write the motion to dismiss for you, and the government makes the call. Is it appropriate or is it not appropriate? Very few resources, but at least it makes the call because it's its resources that are at issue, and it should be the one deciding whether to let a key hammer later go forward on its own or not. And A second point I want to make had to do with mixing of the questions of whether a lawsuit is duplicative and whether it has merit. These are separate questions. If the case doesn't have merit, there's Rule 12B6, there's Rule 9B, there's Rule 11. There are a lot of things that can be done early on in the case, rather than using some other effort um, to try to get the case thrown out.
0: So, 90 is a good rule? Just one. I personally do
2: not contest the applicability of 90 if applied correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I have a
3: call before. Finally, going to the floor. Uh, uh, I, I just argued in the Fourth Circuit on 90, so.
2: Okay. <laughs> if applied correctly. Um,
3: yes. and I, um, I take issue with Marsha on her use of the term frivolous lawsuit. Simply because a lawsuit. May be based on publicly disclosed information does not mean it is frivolous. Uh, and if a lawsuit has merit, and I don't care where the information comes from, if somebody other than the government is willing to go forward and recover money for the public fisc, there should be a provision that allows that person to go forward. Uh, so I, I think it is erroneous or illusionary to say that simply because it's, quote, parasitic, the information is available. Uh, uh, elsewhere, already uh, uh, to the public, that uh, somehow the case has less merit. It doesn't, and this this amendment recognizes that.
5: although it, oh please, Marshall,
4: I got two just two quick points, or maybe three. Um, again, we're talking about cases that the Justice Department's already looked at and said they're not interested in. So. What we're really asking them to do, and that's where the resource issue comes in, is, to, is to, at some point in the future, yet, yet to be decided, to come back and spend their resources looking at the public disclosure issue. I think um, most of us believe that's really not going to happen. I guess you could mandate that they do it at the same time, that they make their intervention decision, but that would take a huge amount of resources. I think this is an area, actually, we're going to amend the statute. Maybe where we should allow the agencies to have something to say about whether they, uh, what their views are about whether these cases should proceed, because they're the ones who are, in many respects, bearing the costs of letting these non intervening cases go forward. And although it absolutely kills
1: me not to get the statute of limitations, because it's one of my favorite issues, yes. I would like to go to the floor. Of questions. <laughs> if you have questions, we have a microphone here, which I apologize for making you get up and walk to, but since we're recording the session,
0: your question will only be heard
1: on the tape. He's speaking to the little microphone. And if we have time and if anybody uh, wants to, to sum up to me by asking questions about the statute of limitations, we'll hear all about the statute of limitations provision.
3: Uh, under the bill, are
5: government attorneys going to be allowed to be related? uh
3: I have not seen anything that would uh, prohibit expressly government attorneys. However, a government attorney has a large number of other concerns such as his duty to zealously represent his client, his duty of loyalty, let alone the attorney-client work product and investigatory privileges. So uh, as a practical matter, I think the answer is no, there's no prohibition. I can repeat that. As a legal matter, technical matter, there's no prohibition. As a practical matter, it's not going to be easy. If you worked on that, well, it, let me just end it there. As a practical matter, it's not going to be easy. It
2: would kill your career.
3: Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yes, ma'am. I have a
4: question for the moderator. Um, oh, what's the I may not be able to answer it. Please. Well, you need to get to different business. The question, no, ma'am. The, pres- can help you. the question is what's the prognosis of the bill? What's the prognosis what's the of the, the bill? What's the status of it right now?
1: Uh, I believe, and the panel may be able to answer the question better than I can, I believe there are two competing bills proposed in the House and in the Senate. And the prognosis of whether it will pass or not, and whether it will be signed when it goes to the White House, if it is passed, just knowing the makeup of the Congress, I would guess that there is a better chance than not that it might be
0: enacted. But a, whether it gets signed by the White House would be I the be. situation right now. Is that it passed committee uh, in the Senate? The yes, um, The sponsors have indicated to various groups that are that are complaining about it that they're still open to address some of the language issues and. Um, people are still willing to talk. Has it been referred to the Judiciary Committee? It's been, it's been reported no, out of no. Judiciary out of Both, both uh, our Justice committee and Judiciary. Uh, Senator he was a member of Judiciary and, and it, was, he didn't, it didn't come up in Finanze. Oh, it did not. Okay, I thought it might have. All right. Um, okay. And so that's happening. Um, the Justice Department has twice written to the Senator and indicated its objection mm-hmm. um, and on sort of provision by provision basis most recently a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, the, that last communication said that other agencies would be weighing in as well. So there's a there's a lot of controversy. It was very uh, the s 2041 was introduced last fall, right September, I think, and uh, um, and it was very quiet for a while, and then got very active as a hearing was scheduled. and even the administration was busy with a new attorney general, and so didn't really get to this until just before the hearing last month. So. There are very few legislative days left in this Congress. That's what I have heard. So, yeah, okay.
4: Uh, if I could just add one thing. So the, the provisions that we've been talking about here today are the provisions in the bill that was reported from the Senate Judiciary Committee. And that's the one you should have. It was, a hand, it was handed out. It was available. You know, on the same
1: topic, I actually would have a question for the panel. And does anybody know what the Department of Justice's position is on the bill? Now, that's and the position.
0: Uh, they're most strongly opposed to the government-related, government relator, related government employee and the revision of the public disclosure provision. Um, most recently, some very strong language on that point. Um, but they're critical of a lot of the language issues that would create fodder um, for litigation and extend the, you know, Additionally, mm-hmm. ambiguity
2: makes for longer disputes. sure of longer disputes. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. know yeah, I'd I'm really, I'm like to write an estimation for the committee. This state of the department took with many aspects of the bill. Um, in particular, was um, very good to asking about the civil investigative demands on yeah. the amendment. The, the opposition to the bill stems from their um, opposition to the government employee as a related provision and the public dis- disclosure provision. I think on other areas they supported the goals of the, of the bill, uh, but it was a question of wording choice, really.
1: And if you could try to just work quickly, with are the civil investigative demand provisions of the bill?
2: Um, yes, yeah, sure. The civil investigative demand is a type of administrative subpoena that the current law Claims Act. Um, allows DOJ attorneys to use to investigate a possible in that case. It's fallen into disuse, however. One of the problems is that only the Attorney General himself or herself can issue these CIDs and that power can't be delegated. So the current bill would allow delegation of that power. Um, it, the bill also clarifies the provision, which right now is very confusing. Few inside the government or outside the government understand it. And the amendment would make clear that the government can make official use of the information that they get through CID, the documents, the testimony, um, and the official use would be defined as all the ordinary things that the government would do, subpoenaed um, information.
5: Yes, sir. My My comment goes back to the very first part of the presentation in which uh, the question of whether or not a, a... a cost was submitted directly to the federal government uh, would be honored. Um, I'm just a poor, simple accountant, but I have previously been CFO of acute care hospitals, and to ignore the role of whether the bill gets submitted directly to the government or not totally ignores the rate-setting processes of hospitals to begin with. Secondly, I also have extensive experience with government contracts um, held by not-for-profit organizations, and many, 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 if not most of those contracts are cost-plus, so that whether the bill goes directly to the, uh, uh, the government or to the prime contractor is really, uh, as Shelley mentioned earlier, form over substance. But there's no dispute that
0: the cost plus contracts, where the invoices and the costs have to be reported to the government, are covered within the statute. That's really not
4: a all. It's
0: not, it's not an issue under current law. Um, I was intrigued by, I think it was Mr. decenthouse who mentioned the uh, application of the False Claims Act to block grants. I was wondering if you could elaborate on the, if I understood correctly, that block
1: grants should not be covered by false by the False Claims Act and whether or not that would also apply to
0: subawards under a grant program. Um, I was reacting largely to what Andy described as a block grant pro- problem. It really depends on the particulars of the grant and of the program as to how you know, how many strings are attached, what is, the government, what is the federal government requiring downstream of the expenditure and what sort of representations are made back to the federal government about how the money is spent. So it is certainly possible to set up a program so that the False Claims Act runs all the way downstream to the employees who receive salaries out of the block grant, you know, three tiers down. It just depends on how the paper flows up and how the um, uh, and how the money flows
2: in. I think an important qualification is liability is always premise on on some level of the answer, some level of, of knowledge. So in other words, the person would have to know that their conduct was having an impact on the federal system, and that is an important constraint. I think, as a practical matter.
0: The difference between knowledge and notice in this context, when you're litigating these cases, is not enough of a reason to hang your defense on. And so that's why these cases settled for hundreds of millions of dollars. Is that you know the information in your files is chargeable to you as a corporation. So um, while well, well, our worthy opponents often fall back to, but only people who did it knowingly get in trouble, uh, people who made mistakes still write their checks rather than on the risk of trouble than a Yes, sir. My disclaimer, I'm, I'm not a practitioner in this area, but my, my question has to do with two definitions. One is of uh, government money, and the other one's of administrative beneficiary. And it seems to me from reading those that it really obliterates the distinction between what's public and private. Um, in, uh, I'm doing this partly from memory, but um, an administrative uh, beneficiary is somebody who holds um, property or who the government holds property and collects it, transmits it, possesses it, administers it, manages it on behalf
1: of that person. Um, I'm having trouble understanding how that doesn't apply to everybody who pays Social Security. It, you know, I
2: think you really yeah. an early version of the bill. All right, yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, that was, um, thank you. Great. Why do you need a 10-year statute of limitations? Why do you need a 10-year statute of limitations?
3: Uh, I can think of several reasons. Uh, it, it's not so much that somebody walks in and says, I discovered a fraud and the fraud occurred. Um, seven years ago as much as it is, is we've been involved in a contract that's been going on 5, 10, 15, 20 years and those exist and I recently learned that uh, indeed there was a lie somewhere back and without a 10 year statute of limitations you can't reach that far back Um, to fully make the government whole from the harm that went on. Another reason is the length of time that it takes for these cases to be investigated. They're phenomenal. Um, In the longest case, I've been personally involved in, took eight and a half years from beginning to end, um, with the case uh, stayed uh, for four years after it had come out from under seal. So it was six and a half years before we, we really got rolling. And sometimes you can pick up things uh, through discovery or uh, investigation and you want to add it. And it's, it, you can't. Um, there's another uh, case out of the Second Circuit which I hate to say, that his name escapes me. There, okay, which, which, well, which held that the government could not rely on the relator's complaint to go back uh, and uh, amend a complaint based on the uh, uh, avoiding the statute of limitations problem based on the date of the initial filing of the religious complaint. So if I file a complaint today uh, and for a fraud that occurred five years ago, the government takes three years to investigate it, learns something, wants to amend my complaint to pick up something that occurred now eight years ago, it can't do it. Most circuits go the other way on that, so this would surely be a correction. But those are the reasons why uh, I think this is a good idea. 30 seconds. Um, There is no reason that I can imagine that this statute
0: is uh, more important than any other civil claim of the United States or of any other private party. Um, The only statute limitation in the federal code that would be longer is murder, which doesn't happen. If I can um, correct that, there is a ten-year statute of limitations for the United States to recover death owed to it. To recover death owed to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: In this statute or in, that, in, uh, that, in the definitely, I don't have the statute. Okay, well you got to research it recently. Yeah. Well, somebody, e- okay. E- so there's one other, but that, <laughs> that one other that it was about. The whistleblower lawsuit, and that's
5: a
0: particularly difficult part of this equation. And I'm going to talk about it in the healthcare context because what it's really about isn't what Andy's talking about. What it's really about is dollars and cents. In a healthcare context, providers bill multiple times every day for patients in various beds, where there are many, many hundreds of pharmaceutical prescriptions billed in a day. When you have a course of conduct that ends up implicating that many claims, even if they're $3 claims, they're subject to penalties under this statute of $5,500 to $11,000. Every day, that falls off the six-year mark, changes the value of the case for a whistleblower. Um, so this is really about getting more years in this statute uh, than than anything else, and thereby almost doubling the exposure in many health care cases. That's certainly going to do something that's going to drive out of it's not going to drive right from wrong. It's also going to drive litigation because there will be people for whom that exposure is just too large
2: to settle. Uh, if I could add one point, I think it's a practical matter. this 10-year statute of limitations for claims brought on behalf of the United States. It's not going to make that much of a difference. Um, the statute currently has in it a three-year tolling provision. So you can bring a claim as long as it's within three years of when a government official knew or should have known um, about the violation of the Act. And that's to exceed 10 years. In almost all cases, when these PFAM cases are filed, it's within three years of, of government knowledge. So you can go back ten years already in almost all cases. The new provision is just cleaner, it's clearer, and then, most importantly, it expressly applies to wrongful retaliation claims. And I think that that has been a, a, a maybe the more important substantive um, impact because of a Supreme Court uh, decision. Also in 2005, uh, Graham County, that held that claims brought for wrongful retaliation under the Act, under Section 3730h, were not governed by the 3731 statute of limitations. Even though 3731 on its state says it covers all claims under 3730, the Graham Supreme Court said, no, you need to look at the most analogous state cause of action and look at that statute of limitations. And they cited a number of statute of limitations that they thought would be analogous that were 90 days 180 days. And and the problem there is that relators would then find themselves in a a real uh, difficult situation in that they would have to rush to file their keypam without properly looking into it getting good counsel just to file their wrongful term uh, within the period of time required so everything could be under seal and the government could investigate covertly if they wanted to. And that's going to lead to more um, inadequately based uh, keypams by by rushing people like that to to, to file the, the keypam provision.
4: Uh, just one comment. Um, in addition, um, the bill actually, this bill has a relation back provision in it, which, which says any amended complaints that the government might file relates back to the, the date of the, of the latest filing. So it actually extends it beyond 10 years. And, and at least in the government contract context, this presents some interesting problems, both for the defendants and for the government. Uh, for government contractors, uh, the current statute of limitations to bring a six years. So the government itself and the contractors tend to retain things for um years after the close of the contract. If, if you're, when you're talking about a statute of limitations that goes out this far, you're talking about and it a related math feature, you're talking about putting tremendous burdens on people to retain materials, including, again, the United States because there's a discovery, I mean, we're talking about key time actions to enforce regulations of the, of the United States to enforce regulations that for instance, apply to the Department of Defense. And though that means the Department of Defense has to retain that stuff for a very, very, very long time and bear the burden of dealing with the relators' action. So the, the statute of limitations with the relation back feature is is a bigger problem than just the ten year issue. Okay. Yes.
3: Sir. Uh two points. Uh, one is I don't think storing documents is that big of a problem. Not in terms of paper. In today's world you can you can scan a document and store it on a microchip and uh, I, 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 Google and Yahoo's databases are phenomenal. Uh, the government can, can do equally as well. Uh, but they change every the two years, so only the in them. theory. In theory they they, they they get rid of it every two years. Um, the other point is that this is not the first time uh, a, a, a remedial statute, uh, or a penal statute, has been uh, amended in order to extend the statute for the patient. It was done during the savings and loan crisis in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, when suddenly the government realized that it had so many court cases that it could not beat the statute of the for fraud against savings and loans, and th- those statute of limitations were extended for five to ten years. Uh, so I don't see anything dramatic or earth-shaking about this.
4: Um, I, I just want to follow. Just my, my point wasn't retained documents. My point is that the government itself, when you get stuff that's that old, they can't find it. And it is, it is a big burden in the discovery process not to save it. But to look for, and it's a, it's a burden on the contractors as well, to have to deal with missing information because all kinds of inferences get drawn from stuff that you don't have anymore, including the government stuff.
0: Hire Google. And what about the block grant recipient that isn't the federal government that ends up having to be the subject of discovery because of the redefinition of claim and presentment? So maybe the state's got a six-year statute of limitations and the relator can't do that, but then the relator wants to bring a miss into it. And Sue got brought on a state agency when the state agency stopped storing information or got a new computer system. Now the state's bearing that cost and they can't pass it through to the the federal government. So not even the legislative body has made a choice to spend that money. And one last comment from Marsha and then. I was going to say, um, two,
4: and and I wanted uh, uh, one minute for a closing statement. So I don't know if people, but 30 seconds anyway. 30 seconds. Okay, I've got one of my own. I think if you you listen to what you've heard here today, What what you should be able to tell if you look at the bill is is that the effect and apparently the intent of the proposed amendment is to expand the relator's role and actually reduce the government's role in the False Claims Act. And as a practical matter, it goes a long ways down the path of outsourcing something that really should be an inherently governmental function, which is the investigative and prosecutorial function. I think we have to, at a bigger picture, ask ourselves Know, what does this do to protect the taxpayer? What does this do to, to help the government manage its programs better? In the end, whatever an investigation reveals isn't, or a CTAM reveals isn't going to make a, the pro, that program or that contract work better. The government needs better processes and better management. When you look at the report of my panel, or you look at uh, exhibits here, or the Army, the Gas report on Army expeditionary contracts, what you hear them saying is the government needs better processes, it needs better management, it needs more investment in the way it does business to protect the taxpayers' dollars. No matter how many relators you have, you're not going to accomplish objective and you don't hear against the report or our report or anybody else saying what we really need is more experienced relators. Shelley,
1: any 30-second closing.
2: Would, I would agree that the government needs more resources no question, but it's just, it, it doesn't happen and I think that the key Tampa bar plays an important role in supplementing um, the government's resources and also serving as an important check on cases that would not be looked into for political or other inappropriate reasons.
3: I, I think that the nature of government funding, contracting, and programs has changed dramatically since this act was was first enacted in the 1860s. Uh, and for all of its laudable uh, results and efforts, the 86 amendments uh, did not. Uh, bring it up to date in that regard. I think these proposals uh, go a lot further towards bringing the False Claims Act up into this century.
1: Well, thank you very much to the Federalist Society for putting on this presentation. Thank you very much to our panelists for an excellent presentation. And most of all, thank you to all of you for coming and joining us today.